Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. You know, when I became finance minister, a, a very senior politician who himself had been finance minister in the 60s said to me, young man, you know, I was reasonably young back then, that young man, you're very unlucky. And I said, why, sir? Uh, and he replied, because you are going to be the finance minister at a time of abundance. Politics is a, mer- it's a very moral business, and when politics is done well, it can be a very noble calling. But politics also is also plagued by moral ambiguity. Every democratic nation has a set of government institutions, some of which are subjected to the day-in, day-out control of democratic politics in parliament, and some which are not. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of Trium Connects. My guest for this episode is Professor Andres Velasco. The conversation I had with Andres is one of the most interesting I've had in a long time, and it revolved around the issue of intertemporal preferences. Now, I know that at first uh, hearing it, it might not sound like a fascinating topic for a conversation, but it really is. It, it has to do with this idea of that my preferences change through time. What I want to have happen changes through time. So, for example, let's explore a little bit, let's say, my decisions to put money into my own pension fund. So I may want to have a pension. Now, notice I'm thinking about myself in the future that's going to benefit from my actions now. So I may know myself in the future will have liked to have had me contribute to pensions regularly through time, so I have a good pension in the end. So at this time, I might say that, okay, I want to have contributions to my pension. But I also might know that my future selves or some time in the future when I get paid, let's say, every month, I may not on that given month make the right decision, the so-called right decision, right based on what my future future self is going to want and what my present self think is the best for me in the long term. I know that I might be tempted in certain weeks or certain months not to make an adequate contribution to the pension fund because of pressing needs at the time. So what I do is set up an automatic withdrawal from my paycheck so I don't have a choice. The payment comes out without my making a decision. And the only way I can reverse these decisions is through some elaborate process. And I may even try to make that process very difficult in order to dissuade my future selves at the time of their short-term need uh, to make it more difficult, not worth the effort to do this. So the idea is there's at least three different selves going on here. That the person that I am now making this binding uh, kind of commitment to contribute to my pension fund through time, and I'm doing this on behalf of what I anticipate my future self to have wanted me to do. This captures this idea of intertemporal changes in my preferences. And now think about states. So could it be that countries recognize this problem, that uh, particularly democratic countries recognize this problem, that there might be some short-term democratic processes that would lead to a decision, a democratically derived decision, that is not in the health, is not in the interest, the long-term interest of the society. 
So we may democratically at some point decide that we're going to bind ourselves not to be able to do certain things in the future. And one thing you can think about this is central banks are often have independence from the short-term political pressures that may arise in a democracy. And the idea is that monetary policy decisions should be shielded from short-term democratic pressures in order to sustain or to carry out a more kind of economically viable long-term strategy for the country. My conversation with Andres today is all about this area. Where should we or what types of issues should we shield from short-term democratic pressures? And how should we decide what those are in a democratic way? And how do we make them binding? I can think of no better person than Andres to discuss these issues with, because he's actually implemented these types of strategy at a national level in Chile. In addition to his practical experience, the depth and breadth of his academic training is impressive. Andres is currently the Dean of the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He received a BA in Economics and Philosophy and an MA in International Relations from Yale University, and he holds a PhD in Economics from Columbia University and was a postdoc fellow in Political Economy at Harvard University and at MIT. In addition to his life in academia, Andres was also a presidential candidate in Chile in 2013, and he served as the Minister of Finance in Chile between 2006 and 2010. After that time in real politics, Professor Velasco served in appointments at Columbia University as well as at Harvard. Earlier, he was an associate professor of economics and the director of the Center for Latin American Caribbean Studies at NYU. And last but not least, he served as a consultant for the IMF, the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and to governments, central banks, and private businesses all around the world. Andre's insights into these questions don't come only from books. His own personal journey gives a richness and a depth to his thoughts that I think is missing in many other conversations and many, many other settings. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Andres Velasco. Andres Velasco, welcome to Triumph Connects. Hello, and uh, great uh, to be here. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Look, you've you've had such an interesting, super interesting life. I, I thought before we started with the kind of content questions to go through, perhaps we could start by beginning just kind of going through the outlines of of what happened early in your life, because I think that probably it formed a lot of what came later on. So you were born in Chile, you're Chilean, obviously, and your family left when you were 16. Is that right? 16 years old? Yeah, that's right. Although left may not be quite the right verb. We were, my father was arrested, put in a plane and shipped out. Yes. And we, and we were forced to leave shortly after that. So you were exiled, Better, maybe exiled is a better word. So yep. In those first 16 years, you experienced life, you know, as a teenager, first under Allende, and then uh, when the coup, uh, you you had some years with Pinochet, uh, kind of from a democratic socialist to a right-wing militator dictatorship. And I just wonder, you know, as a teenager, if you look back, what was life like during those times of such great change from one to another? Those were very difficult 
and very tormentous times, you know, and even even as a kid, you uh, you saw, uh, you know, what a terrible time many people were having. Um, the Allende period, of course, and the Pinochet period were, you know, hugely different. The Allende period was a democratic period, um, although with massive economic and social dislocation. What I remember mostly about the Allende period is queuing up to get cooking oil and rice and, um, you know, uh, paper for the loo because um, the combination of price controls and uh, a crazy budget deficit uh, and, you know, wild money printing created the endemic problem of Latin America, that is inflation. Hmm. Um, and then and then scarcity and uh, more price controls and uh, more speculation. And, uh, you know, the economy was pretty close to collapsing when the coup came. Then, of course, um, once Pinochet was in office, uh, the situation was not only economically uh, difficult, it became oppressive and dictatorial and thousands of people lost their lives. Now, life under a dictatorship is not what you might imagine if you read about, you know, people living in Germany in the 1930s uh, and during the war. You, you read that middle class families were going about their business and, you know, falling in love and getting married and, and raising children, sending them to school and, and changing jobs. Uh, while two miles down the road, you had a concentration camp where hundreds of thousands of people were being murdered. Life in Chile in the 70s had an element uh, of that. I belong to a fairly privileged family. My, my parents were academics. Uh, you know, I'm the dean of a public policy school. When I was growing up, my dad was the dean of a law school. Um, and so I went to, to an English language school where most kids were fairly well off. And uh, they went on with their lives. They were, they were privileged. And whenever I brought up the fact that, you know, I knew from my parents that a mile away from our school, less than a mile away, there was a torture center where people got electric shocks. Uh, mm. uh, most kids didn't want to hear it, or they said, oh, that's rubbish, that's, you know, um, that's invented. Uh, look, the country's peaceful, the country's quiet. And of course, yes, in that particular neighborhood of Santiago, at the, at the Andean foothills, with a, you know, a beautiful football pitch and a beautiful rugby pitch outside the school building, it all seemed very peaceful. But the reality uh, in other corners of the city and the country was, of course, very, very different. So a kind of precursor, they believed it, it was just all fake news, right? That it was... Uh... Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things you learn uh, when you go through situations like that is that human beings' capacity for self-deception is boundless. Mm. Um, you know, we believe what we want to believe. Uh, we believe what our peers say. And uh, it's not simply a cognitive matter. It's a social matter. You want to fit in. So you acquire the uh, views and the beliefs of the people around you. Um, you know, it's, it's a more extreme manifestation of that, of course, when, when you're talking about life and death, when you're talking about torture and, and disappearance. But uh, qualitatively, at least, the phenomenon is, is, hmm. is exactly the sort of thing we see today in the US and the UK and so many other countries. But your father was unlike lots of people that, that conformed. As, as a law professor, I know that he defended many of the political prisoners in the early days. I've heard you speak other times when you tell a story, you entered into your father's office and saw some files. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, my father was one, certainly not the only um, lawyer um, and human rights activist who, who showed just tremendous courage in trying to fight the dictatorship by, by legal means. Um, and that meant, first of all, sitting down and, and, and you know, 
listening to the relatives of victims. Um, you know, my father had a million stories about, you know, sitting in his lawyer's office in downtown Santiago and having a woman knock on the door and say, uh, you know, can you help me? My, my husband was picked up by a military patrol last night and I don't know where he is. So he began collecting files uh, and pictures and, uh, and evidence on these disappearances and cases of torture. Uh, and, and the one picture that stayed with me to this day um, was a picture of, of a woman's leg um, where a hammer and sickle had been burned onto her skin um, by a military patrol who knocked on their um, door in the middle of the night, took the husband away, took the son away. And they said to the wife, um, you know, we'll do this to you so that you will never forget. Um, Gosh. And she appeared in my father's office bleeding the next morning and, and uh, you know, anticipating that this might end up before a judge uh, one day. My father said, you know, can I snap a picture? Can I, can I keep this as evidence? Yeah. And you stumbled upon this photo at the age of, what, 15 or something? 15 or so, yeah. You know, yeah. these are the kinds that we, we were not supposed to see. But, um, but you know, I, in fact, when, when my father was arrested uh, uh, in 1976 and carted away, one of the things that my older brother and I had to do was put everything in a suitcase and make make sure that a lot of that evidence was not found in the house because we would be worried about the house being searched and you know that evidence would have not made you know burly guys uh, with guns very happy. Mm. Uh, so we put it in the boot of the car where it sat for weeks at a time. We didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, crazy. So, so they finally came for your father. But did you know he was arrested at the time, or did he just disappear for a, a, a period of time? Well, again, you know, the, the, the sort of schizoid uh, nature of reality at the time kicks in. I was uh, playing football at school um, on a Friday afternoon, uh, as you know we, we typically did. I was fifteen. And one of my good friends, my, my best friend uh, in school at the time, came rushing onto the pitch and said, I just got a call from your mother. Uh, she needs to talk to you. Your, your father's been arrested. Uh, and this was, you know, 5 p.m. on Friday. He had been picked up as he walked into his um, office. Uh, he walked into the lift, actually, and he noticed that there was some unusually large guys with very short hair in the lift. Uh, and when the, when the lift door closed, they gave him a good beating uh, and carted him away. Uh, in any case, um, we had no idea where he was. The government issued a statement, a press statement, saying that he was going to be kicked out and sent to Peru. So we rang up friends in Peru who went to the airport and waited for every flight that evening and the next day from Chile. And he, he was not on any one of those flights. So we sort of feared, feared the worst. Hmm. But it turned out that he had not been shipped to Peru. He had been sent to Argentina. Which wasn't a particularly safe place to be shipped to at this time, yes? Exactly. This is August 1976. Uh, listeners may, 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 may want to be reminded that in March 1976, Argentina also had had a coup. Um, and therefore, Argentina was in a state of siege at the time, and people were disappearing uh, quite literally by the day. And there was a pact, we learned later, between the, the secret police of Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, something called the Operation Condor. Uh, which uh, made arrangements for the swift disposal of, of dissidents in somebody else's country. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it was easier to get rid of someone um, if uh, people on the street didn't know who he was. So yeah. Argentines were shipped to Chile, Chileans were shipped to Argentina, et cetera, et cetera. And given your father's, as a, as a dean of a law school, he must have had 
that kind of profile within Chile that they felt more constrained, I would guess. Yes. Yeah. My, you know, he was a reasonably well-known person. He had been a senatorial candidate. He had been a leader of a center-left political party, et cetera. So he was, he was a bit of a public figure, um, you know, and, you know, in, in, in Chile, all things in the end come down to social class. It is, you know, not unlike Britain, a class-based society. Um, so, you know, people with, you know, advanced educations and law degrees and, and, and white collar jobs were typically exiled. If you didn't have that kind of background, uh, you know, uh, uh, torture or death was a more uh, likely outcome for you. So my father in that sense was lucky. Um, you know, he, he got away with a, a beating and a few hours in a police car and then he was put on a plane and sent away. And so from Argentina, how, how did, I mean, did you meet them then in Argentina or did you? Oh, Argentina, how, was not, Argentina was not the sort of place where he wanted to go at the time. No, I wouldn't think um, so. No, my father was kicked out with someone else who was also a human rights lawyer and, and a good friend. Um, and once they arrived in Argentina without any papers, uh, fortunately, Chileans don't need any papers to enter Argentina. Um, they, they thought, hmm, we wonder, uh, are people looking for us? So they got on a bus, went to a friend's house, knocked on the door, spent the night there. And then the next morning, um, they sent a friend to a you know, reasonably well-known downtown hotel who registered in their names, uh-huh. saying, my, my friends need a room. They'll be here in a couple of hours. They're getting their luggage. And then yet a third friend um, went in a couple of hours later, walked around the lobby of the hotel. And, and so, you know, again, a bunch of burly men with uh, things in their ears, you know, little wiry things in their ears. At which point, uh, my father and his friend decided, you know, this was not um, a hotel where they would be checking in anytime soon. And what they did is um, they got themselves smuggled in the boot of a car uh, or in the back of a car, in one case, uh, into the embassy of Venezuela in Argentina. Uh, You know, Venezuela today uh, is a failed state governed by a brutal dictator. Venezuela in 1976 was the example of successful democracy in Latin America. And uh, social Democrat uh, Carlos Andres Perez was in office at the time. Uh, my father knew him reasonably well. Uh, and Perez um, you know, asked his ambassador in Argentina to take these two guys in. Um, they lived in the embassy for three or four months until, our, until Argentina gave them the papers needed to leave the country and they went to Venezuela. And then from there to the States. And that's right. where you joined your father again. Is that right? That's right. Um, while, while teaching in law school in Chile, my father had been one of, the, uh, one of the people who put together an exchange program between the University of Chile and the University of California. And he had lots of friends in, in academia in California. So he was offered a job teaching human rights law at UCLA in Los Angeles, okay. California. And that's where we ended up. So... What an amazing experience for a teenager to go through. It must have been terrifying. Um, as you get to the States, you kind of start to go to school and you go on to university and you study social policy, political science, et cetera, and international relations. But how much was, was that driven by your desire to try to understand what had happened in your own country? It's a very good question. Uh, and the truth is, it was driven, um, you know, I don't want to say 100%, but probably 95% precisely by that urge uh, to understand. Uh, one way I've put it in the past when people have asked me about this is, you know, I, I've said that I was part of a generation. Again, I was certainly not the only one of people. You know, we were sort of young men and women in, in the 1970s uh, or early 80s where 
we couldn't quite figure out what had happened in in our country mm. um and we wanted to make sure that it wouldn't happen again yeah again i, I just a bit of background to, to understand why this seems so puzzling unlike other countries of latin america chile had had a functioning democracy uh for you know with with one brief interruption or maybe two brief interruptions a civil war in the late 19th century and, and a brief military regime during during uh the great depression uh, aside from those two um fairly brief interludes chile had had a functioning democracy since the 1820s Mm. So that was about 150 years of democratic rule. Of course, yeah. imperfect democracy, like democracy was everywhere. You know, only white men got to vote, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, but it had a, a sort of a rule of law, and it had fairly developed institutions, and it was viewed as the most stable and most democratic and most sort of rule-bound country in Latin America. So having you know, air force jets. Uh, shooting rockets at, at, at the president's palace and having military patrols picking up uh, university students uh, and, and, you know, and having dissidents dropped out of planes onto the open ocean. It's you know, not the sort of thing that you know, we had ever imagined, we had ever sort of you know, envisioned. Yeah. So at that point, you know, if, you're, if you're a curious person and you're 20 years old, you begin reading books on on history, political science, sociology, economics, and try to understand what the hell went wrong. Yeah, and how do we make sure it won't happen again? Yeah, absolutely. So, you did that. You, I mean, you launched a stellar academic career. You went from strength to strength, and then and then you went back to Chile, entered politics, which we'll yeah. talk about in greater detail soon. Um, but then you went back to the academic world. You're now at the LSE, as you said, a dean of a, a school of public policy. Um, I wonder, because you've experienced both worlds at the kind of highest level, um, what do you think are the biggest misunderstandings between the world of practical politics and the world of those who study politics? Oh, that's that's a good question from which I'm not sure I have a pithy answer. Um, you know, in my mind, they are sort of two sides of the same coin. So... Um, you know, I won't say that there's a seamless transition, but but I can see why both make sense. Um, I suppose the timing dimension is very different. Um, uh, if you're an academic studying politics, one thing that uh, is hard to understand and get a sense for is simply the, the, the rush, uh, the never-ending succession of events that is politics. Um, you know, I, I teach in a school of public policy at the LSE, and, and, and of course, we teach students to deploy evidence, to study data, to make decisions that are informed by, by, by evidence. But, uh, you know, it is a noble and good thing to try to do that. But as, but as you learn when you're in, in, in office, um, you know, you're not solving tomorrow's problem. You're always solving last night's crisis. Um, yeah. yeah. So that, that that's one big difference. The the other difference, uh, which any 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 anybody who watches, say, the West Wing uh, or or any political show uh, will be aware of, is that you're typically not choosing choosing between black and white. You're you're choosing between different shades of gray. Mm. And there's no obvious choice. Um, there are always trade-offs. You know, this policy may be good for Group X and not so good for Group Y, and you're putting things in the balance that are sometimes, um, you know, you wish you wouldn't have to make that choice, but but you do. So, uh, you know, politics is a, mer- is a very moral business, and when, when, when politics is done well, it can be a very noble calling. 
but politics also is also plagued by moral ambiguity. Uh, mm. And when people stop understanding that, when they think that their position is the only decent and good one and everybody else is a crook or evil, then you get the kind of populism and the kind of demagoguery that is, you know, killing politics around the world today. And that's when you get the Donald Trumps of the world and the, and the Orbans in Hungary and the Modis in India and the Bolsonaros in Brazil yeah. who think that they're possessors of a unique truth. Do you think that that tendency is also starting to leak into academia? Um, it seems to me that that line between you know, these morally certain populist leaders, um, more and more that academics are in, in some ways at the worst being forced to kind of choose a side and then stay in their lanes. Um, but at the worst, it's kind of a, uh, the, the idea of a neutral examination of the data and looking at public policy is, is seen as somehow because it's impossible that you might as well go all the way one way or the other. I, I don't know. That seems to me from the outside, but do you, do you find the same thing? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's an infection which is more acute in the US than in the UK, but uh, you see it in the UK and elsewhere as well, uh, which tries to uh, tell the world that, um, that uh, there are no objective standards of truth, that truth is essentially a never-ender exercise of power. Uh, and as a result, um, you have to be um, willing to view every argument through the lens of power and power alone. Yeah. Uh, and this leads um, to some very nasty consequences. Mm. Uh, again, like most things in life, the origins of that view are both understandable and very reasonable. Um, you know, politics is ultimately about power. And therefore, if you don't understand power, you don't understand politics. But that does not mean that naked power must be the ultimate arbiter of everything mm. we, we choose to do. Uh, and I think, you know, you're asking me about the difference between politics and academia. Well, one luxury academia has precisely is that it can insulate itself from naked power and say, look, this may be an unpopular idea. Um, this may be a politically infeasible idea, but it's a good idea. So let's talk about it. Yeah. And one sees in academia today, again, more in the US than in the UK, a mixture of excessive certainty, righteousness, uh, unwillingness to listen, and outright aggressive behavior, which I find very, very toxic. Yeah. Who knew that uh, French postmodern philosophers would uh, come to rule the world, right? At least their ideas, uh, Foucault yes. and, and company. Yeah, well, but, that's, that, that's why an English education is so much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I see you. And, I, and again, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is that in the very kind of best traditions of Latin America and other parts of the world as well, I, I see you as kind of a great public intellectual in that you haven't I'll, I'll take the public intellectual bit. The great, I am thankful for. <laughs> well, but, um, I, I'm allowed to say that. Should, listeners should uh, feel free to express <laughs> skepticism about that particular <laughs> adjective. Well, I, I, I will assert, I will assert my uh, power as the host to say that, uh, it is true. Great, and and one of the things that I think is wonderful about a lot of your work is you haven't constrained yourself to some very narrow kind of baroque elaboration on some fundamental theory that 
that you write and you speak broadly on all kinds of topics. And one of the things that I found a challenge getting ready for this interview is choosing the topics that maybe I would ask you about. So because because you're so widely read and argue and have an opinion about so many different things, but I picked a few that I thought were particularly relevant. And I just wonder maybe we could go through kind of some of these. Um, you recently, I, I, I'd be delighted just before you do, however, let me point out that precisely that willingness to, to think about many issues is, um, you know, suspect among many colleagues in academia. So what you may view as an asset, others may well view as a liability, but you know, well, uh, well, I view it as, as it is. I think we need uh, uh, smart, clever, and experienced people looking at all kinds of different problems. Because if we don't, we we have others that do so and don't have the same. I think kind of humble um, recognition of their own limits. So let let's go for it. So quantitative easing. I was reading an article you recently wrote about quantitative easing, where you were saying that it was time for the U.S. to stop uh, the process of quantitative easing. Uh, and you made a fascinating analogy here, and I, I just wanted to ask you about it. So you argued that quantitative easing is something similar to kind of a variable rate mortgage. So for those of you not listening in the UK, um, variable rate mortgages in the UK are very common. Your mortgage rate is tied to the central bank's base rate, and it can go up or down based on uh, kind of this secondary uh, measurement of inflation. Um, and as in the UK, and then fixed rate mortgages, you say, are akin to kind of treasury bonds. Mm -hmm. And I understand the latter. That So treasury bonds are fixed term mortgages, and the bank, in a sense, takes on the risk. Um, but how can you explain how the creation of money exposes a government to interest rate risk? I, and the reason I ask is conventionally, you know, a lot of people argue that long-term bond rates have stayed low in mm -hmm. spite of all the quantitative easing. And this is an indicator that investors are not concerned about kind of inflationary pressures. Mm -hmm. But I just wondered, could you could you spell out that analogy? Because sure, I think it's very sure. gripping. Sure. Uh, you know, this, this gets very technical very quickly. So let me try to put it in plain language. First of all, what the hell is quantitative easing? It is the purchase of securities using newly created money. What central banks do is they print money. They don't print it literally. They don't have a printing press in their basements, but they press a button on their computers and this creates uh, uh, a unit that we can call a dollar or a pound or a peso. Pick your yeah. favorite currency. Um, so you're creating money and you're using it to purchase government bonds most commonly, but also in some cases, uh, you know, private bonds, private securities of one kind or another. In a crisis, that's very, very, very needed. In a crisis, you know, the best metaphor for a financial system is you know, the plumbing in a house. Um, when it's really cold out and the plumbing freezes, no water comes out of the tap. So you need extraordinary measures. When uh, there's a crisis, the plumbing in the financial system freezes because banks don't lend to each other and non-banks don't get money from banks and everybody distrusts everybody else. So you need the government to step in and um, sort of align interest rates and prices by purchasing a bit of this asset or you know a lot of that asset. That's perfectly fine. But the limits to this, and one limit is the following: when you are engaging in quantitative easing, you are buying one long-term bond that was in the hands of the public 
And what you're giving in exchange is money. Money is also a government liability. It just happens to be very short term. In fact, instantaneous, you know, you, uh, it matures the minute it is issued. So when you issue a lot of money and retire a lot of long-term debt, what you're doing is you are lowering the average maturity of all outstanding government liabilities. Um, so it is as though you had a fixed term 30-year mortgage and suddenly you've moved to a fixed term 10-year mortgage or maybe to a floating rate mortgage. And as Britons know, Americans don't quite know this because they don't get to experience it when you have very short-term debt or when you have a fixed rate mortgage. And, uh, and the Bank of England is keeping rates very low, uh, people are very happy. When suddenly uh, it slams on the brakes, people become very unhappy, which is parenthetically what may be happening sometime soon in the, in the UK. Mm. So uh, this is exactly the risk that the UK, the US, and pretty much every other country in the world is facing nowadays. By issuing a lot of debt, we have shortened the average maturity of that government debt. As long as interest rates are very low, is no problem. But someday we may, you know, countries may come to regret this. And of course, the UK and the US are still fairly well insulated because, you know, especially the dollar are, are you know, it's a reserve currency. Everybody holds dollars in, in, in their pocket. Um, if you're issuing Brazilian reais or Colombian pesos or Thai baht or, or, or Indian rupees, and you're doing this kind of thing, the risk of a run, the risk of exposure to interest rate hikes is much, much higher. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes sense. So we, we might not see it, let's say, in the US and the UK in the long-term bond rates because they're going to be relatively stable, they're insulated, but in other currencies, this could be a real problem. Gotcha. Exactly. And we've seen in the past, you know, markets that freeze and investors freak out. And when the government holds an auction to sell more bonds, nobody turns up. You know, we've seen it in Italy, we've seen it in Mexico, we've seen yeah. it in a million places. Yeah. So it's interesting because in the same article, um, you raise a concern that the process, this quantitative easing process, creates the risk of polarization in the Fed, uh, of the Fed and the Fed's action, and uh, because of its impact on the ability of governments to spend on things they want to spend on. And this theme um, of what should and should not kind of be within at least the pressure of democracy. So what what to kind of shield against democratic pressure. So the Fed in the US has traditionally been shielded from these kind of polarization or politicization. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you, and a worry that you express is that if quantitative easing is, easing is seen as a kind of way to help a specific president or a specific administration, that that, that could become politicized. And and this is a bad thing. And, and it kind of, that way of thinking, um, I think, defines kind of what I want to talk about next. And, and this was uh, when you were um, the finance minister in Chile. And uh, I always think of these, I studied game theory back in the day, and I can remember very clearly uh, talking about Ulysses and the Sirens, right? And this uh, great uh, Homeric uh, um scene where, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Ulysses is the hero. There's an island that have uh, lovely, beautiful uh, women who sing uh, seductive songs. The problem is, is any sailor that comes by and listens to the songs immediately drives their boat into the rocks and they all die. So Ulysses wants to listen to the sirens and not die, supposedly the only person that's ever done this. And so he binds himself to the mask and a mast of his boat and puts beeswax in his crew's ears and says, you know, don't 
no matter what happens, don't listen to me. Um, and of course, he gets to hear the song and survive. But the thing that makes the, the story interesting is it's this idea that we have intertemporal preferences, right? And that, that we can take actions now to stop us from doing dangerous things, even though we might really want to do them in the future sometime. Mm -hmm. The fact that we know that they're dangerous will stop us from doing it. So, and I, I kind of went, one of the most famous things you, that you are famous for, I suppose, is this idea that you set up a couple of different funds in Chile. And I know that you are most, well, perhaps most known for this, although known of many things. And one was the Pension Reserve Fund and one was the Social Stabilization Fund. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if you could tell the listeners, you know, can you describe briefly, you know, what, what these were and what problems or issues were the two funds meant to kind of solve and address and, and whether it fits into this idea of Ulysses and the Sirens? Yeah. Oh, it does very much. Odyssean self-control, some people call it. Yeah. Um, this is a fascinating problem or challenge in the design of political institutions. Um, and it is one, you know, that human societies have been, have been solving for a very long time because we also face it in our personal lives. Hmm. You know, um, I am very keen on ice cream. Um, and I find that if I go to the shop and buy ice cream, once it's in the fridge, I will eat it. So whenever I want to keep a control of my weight, uh, I don't bring the ice cream home and then try to force myself not to eat it. I do something simple. I just don't buy ice cream, right? So this is a perfect example that we just described. Um, you take action today. Don't buy ice cream uh, because you know that uh, in the future, you may not be able to control your actions. Uh, Odysseus um, tied himself to the mast precisely because he knew that once the sirens began singing, he would not be able to control his actions. Now, there are many political institutions that are designed with this kind of logic in mind. I'll give you an example. Uh, in no country, or at least no serious country, uh, are judges, and particularly upper level judges like Supreme Court justices, uh, chosen by election. Uh, we don't decide on the guilt or the innocence of an accused party by holding a plebiscite. Um, we want those decisions to be as insulated as possible from public opinion or the political cycle, because yeah, it, it could be very popular to send someone to the gallows. You know, people don't like that guy, but uh, it could be, you know, very unfair. So beforehand, mm -hmm. we designed the Supreme Court to be as independent as possible to make sure that exposed, we will not be tempted to send that guy to the gallows just because, you know, he happens to be unpleasant and unpopular. Central banking is another example. You mentioned it already. Uh, most serious countries nowadays have, uh, uh, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, whatever, call it what you wish, uh, be reasonably independent. What we tried to do, um, and again, Chile was one of several countries, although maybe in this in this regard, a bit of a world leader, was to apply the same logic to fiscal policy. Um, you know, if you've got a lot of cash sitting around, um, you know, there's a boundless temptation to spend it, sometimes on very good things, sometimes on very bad things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I became finance minister, a very senior politician who himself had been finance minister in the 60s said to me, young man, you know, I was reasonably young back then, that young man, you're very unlucky. And I said, why, sir? Uh, and he replied, because you are going to be the finance minister at a time of abundance. And being finance minister with no money is really hard. 
being finance ministry with a lot of money is much harder indeed. Ah. Um, so, you know, we were experiencing a windfall till it was, uh, you know, benefiting from very high commodity prices. And, uh, you know, as a student of economic history, I knew that commodity prices go up and down. Uh, and so we needed to save some, but of course, saving is, is difficult. Uh, you know, there's always a temptation of having, you know, another pint at, at the pub. Uh, so we created these funds you mentioned, uh, and we created a so-called fiscal rule that uh, sort of placed a ceiling on how much the government could spend in any given year. And this meant that we saved a lot of money in 2006, 7, 8. Uh, and then when the world crisis came in 2008, 9, uh, Chile was among the few countries in the world where the crisis had, you know, very, very mild consequences because we were sitting on a pile of cash and we could use that cash to go and help families, you know, small companies. And, and stimulate consumption and investment. And so, you know, in retrospect, I think it was a pretty good thing to have done. And with the withdrawals from the social stabilization fund, so these were these were forms of sovereign wealth funds, I guess, with uh, exactly. kind of uh, yes. hypothecated, one was hypothecated, meaning that it could only be spent on pensions. Right. Um, and then you had the social stabilization fund, which was kind of the surplus after that. And you had what was called the structural balance rule, Mm. Um, and just this is the nerdy public uh -huh. policy part of me, but can you tell us a little bit about how that worked and who decided how much could be withdrawn in any given time? Okay, we're getting into the nerdy bits now. Um, <laughs> happy to oblige, happy to oblige. I've been writing about these subjects for you know much of my academic and professional life. Uh, here's the basic idea. Um, when, when you take an introduction to economics, you learn about consumption theory. And the way human beings are supposed to consume, you know, we don't always do this, but you know, on, on average we do, is um, if it's an unusually good year because you know you got paid a bonus at work, uh, and you fear that next year may be not such a good year, well, you save a bit from this year's bonus um, for next year, so that your consumption will be reasonably stable over time. In nerdy language, that is called the permanent income hypothesis of consumption. Right. Um, there is an analogous theory for for um, fiscal policy. Uh, it's called the consumption smoothing uh, or fiscal expenditure smoothing theory, which says, you know, government's income goes up and down all the time uh, because you have booms and busts. Commodity prices go up and down. Sometimes, you know, you get a lot of VAT from employment. Sometimes you don't. And certainly government cannot be telling pensioners, hey, sorry, this was a bad year, so I'm going to remove your pension. Um, or, you know, you can't be telling kids on scholarships, sorry, uh, you know, there, there are no scholarships this year, or, you know, you have to pay fees at, at schools that used to be free. So the way you smooth that um, flow of expenditure by the government is you say, and this was a Chilean rule, let us calculate what a long-term path for government income is. That's the so-called structural income. So we did it in a fairly involved and systematic way. We would invite every year 15 leading economists, both Chilean and, and international, to give us their estimate of what uh, the country's growth rate would be for the next 10 years. Then we had a separate group of people um, who gave us their best guess for certain key commodity prices, copper, molybdenum, and a few others. Um, we put all of those estimates into you know, the computer. We had a set of equations. Uh, uh, those gory details, I think I will, I will skip. No, no uh, need to go into those. No. Uh, and then um, you, know, you pressed a button, and that said, look, 
the sustainable level of government income for each one of the next 10 years is X. In the case of Chile, that was, you know, uh, the order of magnitude of something like $70 billion per year. Um, so that meant that we had a rule that said we're going to spend maybe a little bit more than the 70, a little bit less than the 70, but, but not a lot more, not a lot less. So that was the budget ceiling that I mentioned earlier. Okay. And this was, you know, financially sound, but it was also politically important because it changed the dynamics of a political discussion. Just as in a family, you know, the kids always want to spend more, but it's the role of the parents to say, hey, kids, you know, um, maybe we can spend a little bit more this weekend and a little bit less during the week. But but uh, across all seven days of the week, there's only so much income we have. Well, it's an interesting analogy there because it, it depends on who's the children and who's the parents, right? And, <laughs> and so you have to decide, you know, in a sense, this is why I said, who gets to decide? So in that structure, there has to be great trust in the people making those kind of decisions, first of all. And, and it appears that there's, it, it takes a lot of discretion, at least in the short term, uh, out, away from democratic politics. And the story about Ulysses, of course, is interesting because it raises the question of whose views should trump, right? Whose views should be who we should listen to? Should we listen to uh, our long-term interest and then our short-term interest? And if we say, well, it should be our long-term interest, who gets to define that? You are getting to the core of the matter here. So this, this is both fun and, and, and very, very relevant. Um, let me take issue with one thing you said, which could be misunderstood by people listening in. Uh, there's nothing undemocratic about having such rules. Again, every democratic nation has a set of government institutions, some of which are subjected to the day in, day out control of democratic politics in parliament, and some which are not. I give you one example, the Supreme Court or you know senior judges, they are not subjected to uh, the democratic cycle. You know, a member of parliament cannot ring up a judge and say, hey, declare that guy innocent uh, because my electors would like him to be declared innocent mm. or guilty. We have other institutions which are always insulated from democratic uh, politics. You know, the regulator, the attorney general, the uh, people fixing prices uh, for regulated goods like electricity, for instance, you know, those people don't take polls, uh, those people don't go to parliament uh, before making their decisions. So first, first idea that I want to emphasize, this is not about being democratic or undemocratic. Every democratic regime has a continuum of choices, some of which are very political, very short term, some of which are less political, less short term. And that is of the essence of any well-functioning democracy. Now, having said that, of course, then you have to make the choice, which ones are where. Uh, it's pretty obvious that a judge uh, or a high-level regulator or the attorney general should not be uh, subject to day-to-day -day democratic control or, say, majority rule control, because they're subject to democratic control. The question is how often, right? Um, right. Um, I think or how directly. Let me I, Just let me inter inter yeah, intervene yeah. for a second. So, I mean, one could say that the court's are a form of law enforcement and the laws themselves are formed by democratic bodies. And so it's, 
maybe it's how far removed. So the Congress or the state legislature or the um, the parliament creates the laws and then they have executors to carry out the laws, the judges carry out the laws, but the laws themselves are derived from the democratic okay. process. But you, you could say exactly the same thing about a fiscal rule. The fiscal rule was passed by parliament. Uh, mm -hmm. It was discussed there and, you know, in any well-functioning country. Uh, and this was certainly the case in Chile. We spent six or seven months in parliament arguing over the details of this law. Uh, it was passed in 2006. Okay. Uh, a lot of the gray hair, you know, um, I have on my head, uh, I got from that. Um, so yes, uh, if you want to, if you want to use your law enforcement analogy, that's perfectly fine. There was a legal framework for, for doing this. The legal framework um, gave uh, the government certain powers, but not all powers. Um, it gave uh, some autonomous fiscal entities uh, some power, but not all the power. And uh, of course, this was only setting a ceiling. It didn't set the budget. Once you had the ceiling, you wrote the budget and you took that budget to parliament and parliament yeah. was free to modify the components of that budget. What the only thing parliament could not do is if the government said the application of the rules says that this year the you know government expenditure cannot exceed eighty billion dollars, then Parliament could say, okay, I'm 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 happy moving money around. What I cannot do is spend more than seventy billion dollars. And this is what I think is really interesting. So we're we're giving preference to a judgment, and they're both democratic. So I'll give you this, but we're yeah. giving preference to a judgment that's made at let's say. T minus five, to, right. you know, saying that we're going to impose this stuff and these are going to be the limits. And within that limit, we can spend whatever budget we, we, you know, we can spend the amount, whatever the amount is, but the amount itself can't be changed by yeah. us, the right. parliament in the future. So what, how do we privilege, at what point in time do we so decide that this is a privileged choice from the democratic that will impose its system I, I, in the future? at the point of time when a democratically elected and legitimate parliament chooses to do so. And again, there are plenty of analogies. Let me give you another example. The UK for the last two weeks has been talking about sleaze and government. That's been the main subject, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and many people wish um, that ex ante, at T minus five, to use your mathematical analogy, the government had set you know, a bunch of rules that would limit MPs' abilities to take second jobs and which would create more powerful uh, offices of state that could say, well, that's a legitimate job, that is not, you can do that kind of consulting, you cannot do that other kind of consulting. There's an interest, uh, there's a conflict of interest here, but not there. Um, and that would have limited um, the kinds of things that parliament could do, but um, that's perfectly democratic. Why do we have constitutions? We have constitutions, well, the UK doesn't have a constitution, but the United States does, Chile does, you know, almost every other democratic country does, precisely because constitutions set limits on, on, on majority rule. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, um, you know uh, uh, in, in the United States, which has a constitution, parliament or Congress could not decide, you know, that, uh, you know, a certain ethnic group has no right to vote, right? right. Uh, 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 so, you know, we're all, you know, we're limiting short term majority rule all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, placing some uh, constraints on majority rule at certain points in time when it comes to fiscal policy is, is not particularly weird. We do it all the time in many other dimensions. Yeah, I, th I think we do it in other dimensions. And, and again, I think the constitutional question is a good one because there we require all kinds of super majorities and we make it very uh, hard. But but I, I take your point that that takes place at a time as well. So maybe a more interesting question would be, 
Do you think that there's any kind of logical limits as to what sorts of policies should or shouldn't be insulated or made at, if we use the analogy or use the symbolism of T minus five? So right. for example, should something like carbon emissions be subject to kind of these, these regulatory environments that would shield the short term from making the kind of short term democratic pressures from enforcing the, the wrong decision based on the long term interests of the society? Should we take environmental policy out of the short-term democratic process? Two thoughts. First, these are not obvious choices, so they need a lot of deliberation. Uh, and there's some, you know, clear-cut cases like like uh, law enforcement. Um, there are others that uh, you know we need to talk about. And you know, you're providing a very good example. Second thought is when it comes to environmental policy, and I'm not an expert, but let me say something which I hope will be half intelligible. Um, there are two choices to be made. One is you may wish to pre-commit to certain targets. What were people doing in Glasgow last week? Exactly that, uh, not country by country, but at a global level. Countries were saying, I pre-commit not to uh, emit more than X over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, and entering into those binding agreements across time is you know, very desirable. And I can think of no more urgent need for those kinds of intertemporal agreements than, than, than the environment and, and greenhouse gases and global warming. Now, would you want that commitment to be one that parliament could abrogate overnight? Probably not. Would you want to keep parliament entirely out of that? Probably not. For example, uh, it could perfectly, you know, it would be reasonable, I think, to say, okay, the United Kingdom or Chile or Australia, pick your favorite country, committed to a ceiling on emissions. Now let us have a national discussion of how we're going to achieve that. Are we going to have a price uh, tax on carbon? Are we going to have a carbon market? Are we going to use quantitative controls? Are we going to give priority to certain kinds of economic activities over the others? Uh, all of that is up for grabs, right? And that all of that is legitimate uh, province of democratic discussion. And out of that discussion, maybe there will be some gainers, some losers, you know, people driving large lorries may not be happy and people, you know, taking the tube in London may be net gainers, who knows? Um, that is perfectly okay, as long as, you know, the it's UK stays within the ceiling that it democratically uh, 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 set for itself. Yeah. In, in Chile, we had the same thing. We had a ceiling. It, the, the procedure for setting the ceiling had been set democratically. And then we had a discussion about the how and the when. I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I think what's interesting here would be that the, but the parliament itself would have to bind itself because the international agreement doesn't have the kind of enforcement mechanisms to make right. that happen. Exactly. I mean, in, in, in a certain way, it's it's a little bit uh, analogous to the tax stability agreements that were also uh, that Chile has used in the past and other countries right. where you have big capex investments from extractive industries and the way you, you make sure that they can calculate effectively their um, their cost through time is you you make an agreement that their taxes will be set at a certain amount for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, um, yeah. People, governments do that all the time, and they they enter on, into all kinds of, of commitments. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of those commitments may be you know viewed as favorable favorable to business. You, you just described one. But of course, the country also gains because it will have more more investment. Mm. Uh, when you do 
say, concessions of infrastructure, the government may commit to a sort of floor on, on income so that yeah. if you're building a tunnel and there's not enough traffic, the government may provide a guarantee. Sure. So, you know, governments commit in some cases not to do things in the future. Uh, in other cases, they commit to do things in the future. But committing ahead of time, as long as the initial procedure was transparent and transparent and democratic, is not only not wrong, it is of the essence of good governance. Yeah. Well, and and again, those caveats are important because, of course, let's take tax stability agreements. If there's any hint that there is any corruption in the process, that people were, were making those, then, then that can be problematic. And then you have uh, countries, for example, Peru has indicated that they want to renegotiate some of these agreements. Uh, recently, there's a lot of pressure in Chile to renegotiate many of these tax stability agreements. And, yeah. and whether it's, it's maybe more akin to the environmental uh, topics we were talking about, because there's no kind of external enforcement mechanism, unless of course they have some sort of arbitration thing that happens outside of the country and they're, bind, they're bound by some legal uh, liability from outside. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. Those analogies I think are, are, are appropriate and revealing, but let me add just one thing. The temptation to renegotiate exposed may be very appealing from today's perspective, but it is almost always unsound from a longer term perspective. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if there's one area where my region of the world, Latin America, has gone wrong again and again and again, it's precisely in thinking that, oh, we'll just do it once uh, and nobody will remember, right? Yeah. And people do remember. Yeah. Um, and as a result, Latin America um, has had, on average, higher rates of inflation and other emerging market economies uh, and lower rates of growth because you cannot renege on your promises all the time. And, and uh, you know, once you do it a few times, uh, then people come to expect that you will again. And that is no sound way to conduct policy. It may be tempting, it may be sexy, the political payoffs may be huge, but it is not a smart thing to do. So it's interesting because you mentioned Latin America. I, I wonder if another thing I wanted to ask you about, there seems to be, I don't know, for both right-wing and left-wing populism in Latin America has been a problem for a very long time. And do you think it's a region that's somehow kind of culturally or historically destined to this time of politics? Or is it just mostly, I don't know, a manifestation of current global trends that we see? Because you see democratic systems in Latin America in the last 10 years coming under all kinds of pressure from both the left and the right. So what's happening here? A few thoughts. First, um, I'm, a not, I'm not a big believer in cultural determinism. Um, mm. You know, unlike a lot of economists, I do think that culture matters uh, and that cultural uh, uh, elements in society are both important and, and change slowly. However, cultural determinism may be going one step too far. I'll give you one example. Go back to the 1950s and 60s, and there were plenty of sociologists and anthropologists who were predicting that capitalism would never take hold in Asia for cultural reasons. Yeah. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, <laughs> Good you know, point. Go, go to Korea or Japan or China, and uh, you'll find you know, some surprising news, right? So cultural determinism uh, is not a very good guide to these kinds of problems. Now, having said that, you know, it's not to be disputed that uh, Latin America has, you know, a love affair with populism, has had for a long time. Um, we invented the damn thing, really. Um, you know, when, when I'm speaking to American audiences, I, I can always get a, a laugh out of undergraduate students 
if I say that, you know, compared to Peron, the Argentine populist of the 1940s or Vargas in Brazil, uh, um, you know, Donald Trump was just an apprentice, um, uh, which, uh, which he was. I mean, you know, people were doing similar, you know, playing, pulling similar tricks when it came to governance back in, you know, 1930 and 1940. Yeah. Um, we thought for a while we were getting away from this. And uh, as you know, uh, after the terrible dictatorships of the 70s and, and 80s, Latin America had a bit of a democratic renaissance and a real strengthening of institutions. And, uh, and sort of in the, in the last decade of, of the previous century and the first decade of this century. But uh, we seem to be back in square one now, maybe not quite in square one, but there's a lot of backsliding. Uh, and we have terrible, uh, you know, anti-democratic regressions. You know, Venezuela is the most obvious example, but um, Nicaragua, which had, you know, a travesty of elections, yeah. in which, you know, Ortega put every major opposition figure in jail first and then asked people to vote, uh, yeah, yeah. is, you know, just, just uh, completely appalling and unacceptable. And, and parenthetically, what a good thing it is that, that the EU and the UK and the US and, and, and most Latin American democracies and I'll said it loud and clear. Um, and of course, you know, those are the extreme cases, uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, um, increasingly El Salvador, by the way, is also uh, going that route. Yep. Um, and but you you have other kinds of, of regimes which have not gone as far uh, in the uh, in the abolition of personal or political freedoms, but where the weakening of the autonomy of some institutions uh, and the weakening of some checks and balances is fairly evident. You see that in, in Mexico. You see that in Brazil. Uh, you see it in a, in a number of other countries of the region. You know, Latin America always had left wing populism, uh, with maybe somewhat novel, not entirely novel. Is that we're also getting some nasty right-wing populism that's it yeah you asked is this a world trend yes of course it is yeah i'm not sure whether latin america invented it and then it spread um uh, elsewhere or whether we kind of are now importing it but um you see people like bolsonaro in brazil and there's a guy called cast who's running for president of chile were very much drawing on the on the trump playbook yeah playing the anti-immigration law and order anti-woke card to the hilt yeah. And that's um, not a great thing. Yeah, I mean, I for what it's worth, I see it kind of as a global contagion that Latin America as a patient might be, you know, has kind of comorbidity uh, kind of <laughs> things that have to do with it. But look, we're we're running out of time. I want to I want to get you out of here on time. I'm I'm going to make an observation, and you can disagree with it or not. But from an outsider's perspective, uh, it appears that there's a kind of theme running through your life. You know, from the experiences you had as a youth, um, it seems like you learned kind of the lessons of not necessarily maybe the excesses of democracy, but maybe the lack of what happens when you have a lack of kind of competence or or economic competence in democratic politicians. You you experience the hyperinflation and all of the mess that maybe came along with the Yende, and and this opened up this conditions of extreme polarization and led to this catastrophic consequence of the Pinochet regime. And it seems like to me, anyway, you spend a big part of your early life trying to figure out what policies, you know, how, what, what, what could you do? How, why did this happen and what could be done to stop it, as you said? And part of that response seems to be that you remove certain options from the kind of menu of short-term democratic choices. And you attempt to kind of make sure that the economy is being kind of competently run for the long term to try to 
kind of keep the devil down in the hole, right? Try to keep that those kind of conditions that might create another kind of Pinochet or another another version of this. And then unlike most academics, you actually put these ideas in your own self on the line with your own political activism and engagement and you and you engage in the world. And, and I just wonder now, I mean, I, I know this is a, a kind of armchair psychological analysis, but as you look out at the democratic world now, do you start to see, are you worried about the devil starting to climb out of that hole again? Do you think that our institutional structures will hold? Oh, I'm very worried indeed. But before I get to that, let me rephrase something you said slightly. Um, it is not that I'm worried about too much democracy. On the contrary, I think that, that the threats to democracy must be must be um, fought against using more democracy. Right. Uh, the question is, what kind of democracy? Yeah. What I where I find myself getting impatient or sometimes downright uh, uh, depressed is with you know the lack of awareness by a number of political actors and this is true of latin america but it's also true of the us the uk every other you know many countries in, in asia and africa lack of awareness that when things go wrong they go really wrong yeah. and so we have a duty of responsibility uh, i had dinner recently with a very senior and very respected british economics commentator uh, and off the cuff over dessert, I said, why do you think Britain had a financial crisis in 2008? His reply was, oh, very simple. That was the first time when we didn't have anybody alive anymore who had been around in 1929. Mm. Um, you know, if you've been through a crisis, uh, uh, sort of the devastation of a crisis, like the Great Depression, Second World War, you know, fascism in Europe, uh, or Pinochet's uh, death camps in Chile, um, you become aware that, um, you know, politics is not uh, a frivolous business, can never be, uh, and that uh, one can work for change and work very seriously for very serious change, but it has to do so in a way that is responsible, that keeps the future in mind, and that is aware that when you get it wrong because you made some stupid short-term frivolous choice, uh, people don't simply lose their jobs, they sometimes lose their lives. Mm. Um, and um, there's a combination uh, today of short-termism, uh, uh, myopia, and frivolity in politics, uh, both on the far left and on the, on the far right, that I find very, very distressing. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you could say that I'm just you know, a grumpy middle-aged guy who, uh, who doesn't want you know, to allow the younger generation to, to do their thing. And I don't, you know, I don't know if that's a fair charge or not. I think it isn't, but I, others may dispute it. But um, look, clearly, when you get the kind of terrible quality debate about the issues that, or the non-debate about the issues that we're getting in many countries, the inability to look beyond the tip of our nose at problems that are so huge as global warming, um, then, uh, then we're doing something wrong. Yeah. And uh, it is not a fluke that if you ask people around the world, and this is true of rich countries, poor countries in the north and the south and the east and in the west, are you pleased with the uh, performance of democracy in your country? More and more people are saying no. Yeah. And that's a trend that is very, very worrisome and that we need to stop. It's a great place to stop. So one, one last question. Will you ask each of our guests a book, a film, play, podcast, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, 
what you've read or experienced or consumed during COVID times that shaped your thinking? What's, what's something you recommend for our listeners? Uh, let me recommend two things. Um, uh, first of all, being in, in, in London, sort of locked in my own home, I, I, I began reading a lot about British history during World War II, of course, when, you know, Londoners were locked in their homes, you know, fearing that a bomb might drop uh, um, on their heads. And, you know, one thing, one, one thing I learned from that is that um, sometimes you come out of a crisis, uh, you know, beaten and sore and, and with big losses, as Britain did, but with a sense of common purpose and a sense of, um, of national unity. Uh, and that, I think, happened in 1945, uh, Britain. It did not happen, say, in the U.S. Uh, in 2010, where, you know, mm. we came out of a massive financial crisis. I think the Obama administration did actually some very sound things. Uh, I'm a big fan of Obama and his economic team. But people came out with a feeling that Wall Street got a bailout and Main Street got nothing, mm. or the High Street got nothing, to put it in British parlance. Um, and so different crises, depending on how they're handled, both technically and politically, can have very, very different outcomes. That's been one theme of my reading. Um, but then the other thing that occupied most of my time, um, you know, you'll be surprised to hear this because economists don't typically read this sort of thing. I've become very interested in evolutionary biology and social anthropology. And this goes back exactly to a point you raised earlier, um, you know, to what extent is culture sticky and to what extent is culture a... Um, a constraint on, on policy and politics. It seems to me that if you look at populism around in the world, it is very hard not to begin asking questions about you know, the degree to which we're tribal uh, animals, the degree mm -hmm. to which sometimes you know, reason trumps, uh, sorry, emotions trump reason. Um, so what is the proper role of reason? What is the proper role of emotions? How do they work together or across purposes? How do these sort of moral instincts that we have built into us uh, evolve over time? And, you know, the, the people best placed to, to think about that are, you know, are sort of either brain scientists or psychologists or cultural anthropologists or evolutionary biologists. So I've been reading, who have I been reading? So here's my reading recommendation. I've been reading uh, Joseph Heinrich, who's a, a Harvard professor, Jonathan Haidt, who is an NYU professor, uh, Josh Green is also a Harvard professor. Uh, you know, they're sort of in that, in that area of evolutionary biology, cultural anthropology, and they have fascinating things to say that are hugely relevant to the issues of, of populism and bad politics in the world today. Sounds, sounds interesting. Andres Velasco, thank you very much. Thank you very much. What a pleasure. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.